0: Coming up on Stew Does America, you're still feeling some PTSD from almost having a President Clinton in 2016. Well, good news this year we will only have to fight Joe Biden, but the bad news is we could potentially have a President Joe Biden. We should probably do everything we can to avoid that and the Washington Post has declared war on Halloween, but I'm pretty sure Halloween will win on account of all the witches and monsters and demon hellspawn. Robbie from Reason.com takes us through it. And what's it like to be a comedian in a cancel culture? Probably not a whole lot of fun, unless you enjoy being yelled at on- online a lot. Uh, Bridget Phetasy joins us to explain why she likes being yelled at online a lot. By the way, see this? This thing right here, YouTube viewers? Yeah, it's a thumbs up. And uh, what I'm doing right there, you should look for a button that looks like this below and click it right now. Just do it now before you forget. It really helps us out. Go ahead, as the kids say uh, these days, smash that MFing like button, which I don't know if they actually say that, but if they do, it applies here. Uh, It gives us a fighting chance against the evil algorithm overlords, and we need to defeat them. And once you've had a free taste of the network, go ahead and order the entire platter. Head to blazetv.com slash stew to access all the great conservative content we offer. Just be sure to use the promo code stew, please, because that's how they know you like this stupid show, and it saves you 10 bucks on the cost. All right, before we get started, another Fat Guy food review. Carrot Cake Oreos. They're Oreos that taste like carrot cake. Sounds like a good concept, but in practice, eh, I don't know if they really pulled this one off. I'll give it a C-plus next time, less carrots, more cake.
1: Stew does
0: America. The other day, my adorable daughter Ainsley had a boo-boo, and it got infected. Eventually, it required a trip to the doctor, which, as you know, if you're a parent, is pure hell. There is nothing worse than when you have a little kid suffering through a painful doctor's appointment. But, you know, there's nothing you can do. I mean, you have to be honest. There is an infection and you have to make it better, even if it sucks in the short term. I tell you this with the full knowledge that I'm talking to a bunch of adults. I suspect if you're watching this, there's a good chance you don't want Joe Biden to be our next president. And as I have found in life, I like to know the worst case scenario first. That way, everything else that happens seems like good news. So let's start there. Look, there are 21 million conservative shows out there that will tell you everything is awesome. Everything is cool if you're part of the team. Don't worry, your leg is fine and there is no infection, which isn't part of the song, but it absolutely should be. In a lot of places on the right, it's sunny and 85 every single day. And some of that is probably necessary, largely because, to continue the weather, weather metaphor a little bit, the mainstream media is constantly telling you we're in the middle of a four-year Sharknado. I'm not saying we're in the middle of a four-year Sharknado. It's not sunny in 85 either, though. And as I break this down, there will probably be a lot of times that you'll be saying, yeah, but I'll try to get to as many yeah buts as possible. Some of them are legitimate. Some of them, eh, not so much. And I'll start with the boo-boo and then get you know the whole infection thing out of the way. And then we'll get to the glory of the antibiotics. So with all that being said, how do things look right now for the Trump campaign? On the surface, eh. Not so good. Yeah, but I'll get to the yeah buts in a minute, remember? And I'll get to the good news in a minute as well. Right now, Joe Biden leads in the average of polls by about nine and a half points, according to Real Clear Politics, and 8.9 points, according to 538. Yeah, but this is the same thing that happened with Hillary Clinton, right? Well, I see your point, um, but it's really not all that similar. If you look back to the 2016 polling chart from Real Clear Politics, and of course, all we do here is show you graphs. The election was far less stable than the one we're dealing with right now. There are about seven times during the campaign where either Trump tied, came close to tying, or outright took the lead. Four of those seven times had already happened at this point in the election. Now, here's the average for 2020. The lead for Biden has been remarkably consistent. We've not had those moments where polling gets really close or Trump takes the lead, at least not yet. Yeah, but the polls were wrong in 2016. That's common knowledge, but it's not really correct knowledge. Remember, the national polls don't predict the Electoral College. They predict the popular vote. In the last week of the election, the average of national polls predicted Clinton by between one and three points. The final result was Clinton by 2.1. Trump outmaneuvered Clinton and won the states he had to. But that was more of a problem with the Clinton campaign than a problem with the polls. Yeah, but... Everyone said Clinton was going to win last time. That's true. But Joe Biden is significantly outperforming Hillary Clinton. For example, Hillary finished with a 13-point lead in the, poll, uh, of the final polls of female voters. In case you didn't know, female is one of the 321 genders that have been discovered by scientists from Chaz. It's true. Biden is currently up by 24 points, almost double the margin Hillary led by. And Hillary was a woman. Something I'm aware of because she said it every 12 seconds. Biden is outperforming Hillary in basically every demographic and in every swing state by a pretty good margin. That's because Hillary was horrible in every way imaginable. Also, with the exception of a few days right after Trump came down the escalator in 2015, Hillary never could get to 50 percent of the vote. Biden has been north of 50 percent for the majority of the election cycle. Yeah, but these things change all the time. That's true, but we're not that far away, are we? I mean, it's basically July, which only gives you about four months to the election. And in the history of polling, no presidential race that looked like this at this point has changed. As Harry Anton noted, there were 40 major presidential polls in May. Joe Biden led all of them, 40 for 40. The only other time that's ever happened was Jimmy Carter in 1976, an election he won. The only other times that a president has had an approval rating where Trump's is currently at was Jimmy Carter, but in 1980, and George H.W. Bush in 1994, both lost. Yeah, but what about the hidden Trump vote? Mm -hmm. The concept here being that people don't want to admit to others that they support Trump because they don't want to be called racist McRacist face. Hmm, It's true. And there was some evidence of that in 2016. Throughout the election, Trump performed better among automated polls than live interview polls. No one cares if an automated phone system thinks they're racist, except me. I find them very judgmental and I don't like them. So is that happening now? Not so far. There are some minor differences here and there, but nothing that can even come close to the sorts of margins we're talking about. So are we going to amputate your leg? Is that dark cloud over the horizon really a shark NATO? On the surface, Biden is up and he's up big. But now let's allow a few rays of sunshine in. Let's get to the good side of the yeah buts. Yeah, but Biden is uniquely terrible. Well, yes, he is. He can barely get through a sentence without drifting off into incoherent nonsense. And it looks painful. He can't remember the facts or what he's talking about, or a lot of the time, even his wife's name. Yeah, but Biden has been hiding. Yes, he has. Say what you want about the Democrats. They have played this perfectly so far. Almost every single move they've made is designed for one specific purpose, to not remind the American people that their nominee is Joe Biden. We know Joe Biden is horrible. They know Joe Biden is horrible, but they can't keep it hidden forever. There are conventions. There are debates. There are interviews. There are gaffes and allegations and investigations that we don't even know about yet. And finally, the biggest, yeah, but this is not a normal year. You can take everything I said about polling and previous elections and throw it out. We're in the middle of a global pandemic. Millions of people are scrambling to find jobs. There are people trying to eliminate police departments. You can no longer get Aunt Jemima at the grocery store. It is freaking insane out there. Donald Trump has been forced to deal with all that crazy for the past few months. And through that time, Trump has spent precisely one speech aiming his political fire at Joe Biden. Trust me, it's not going to be the last. Trump is going to be on the attack for the next four months. Can Joe Biden handle that amount of heat? I've never seen any reason to believe that he can. So yes, you can make a case that Biden is ahead right now. But to do so, you have to ignore the context of the moment. This election will tighten when people remember that this isn't just about whether they like Donald Trump or not, or whether they like pandemics. It's about whether they think Joe Biden can do a better job. It's about whether Biden stays awake long enough to make it through a meeting with a world leader. And it will also rest on voters' opinion on how Trump handles a crisis. If they see him as disconnected and incompetent, he's toast. If they see him as a guy dealt a tough hand and is making the best of it, he can absolutely still win this thing. If nothing has changed by the end of summer, it'll be appropriate to start panicking a little bit. But that's very premature. And if 2016 taught us anything, you underestimate Donald Trump at your own peril. So here's the battle plan for Donald Trump. Number one, Trump is great at exuding confidence. But what he needs to do now is exude competence. You need to be the guy who's got a handle on this whole thing. You don't need to give up being entertaining or controversial at your rallies. You can still have fun. But make people understand you're on top of these things too. Show off your experts. Highlight them publicly backing your decisions. Focus on the progress made for a COVID vaccine. Continue the strategy of allowing governors to do their thing while promising to help if needed. And don't let Democrats bait you into a fight to pull the rug out from under those who lost their jobs because of a pandemic that they, the Democrats, were also just as dismissive of, even though they're going to accuse Donald Trump of having all the problems. Number two, focus Americans attention on the extreme left and their plans to uproot everything people love about this country. When they rip up a Ulysses Grant you know, statue and they tear it to the ground, send a check to build a bigger one. Force Biden into positions where he has to choose between the country and his insane activist wing. Make sure people know that a vote for Joe Biden is a vote for universally recognized dunce Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and her Chaz cheerleading minions. And number three. Trump naturally dominates the news cycle, but he needs to use that power to focus attention on Joe Biden, not himself. The Democrats are going to try to make this a decision between Trump, a divisive guy, and a generic Democrat. It's Trump's job to make it all about Biden as well. Make people own their decision to pull the lever for a guy that everyone knows is way past his prime. When it comes down to that moment, do you trust Joe Biden leading this country? Do you even trust him making a peanut butter and jelly sandwich? So that's it. Your three-step battle plan for Donald Trump. Exude competence, restore our traditions, and remind voters that their other choice is an incapacitated buffoon who was barely competent 50 years ago and is barely coherent today. If Donald Trump can do those three things, he's going to win. So if you put on weight during the coronavirus thing and you don't know what to do now, maybe you're just getting, you know, I just heard New York was just getting outdoor dining back like this week. Uh, So uh, there's different situations all around the country. As you're coming out of that, you want to look a little bit better, you want to look better on those Zoom calls, you want to try Fast Blast. Fast Blast is a great way to lose weight quickly uh, and safely, healthy. Um, but doing it in a different way. Uh, you probably think of fasting. I mean, I think, we're, you know, the American culture is, is, is a weird one and that we've had s- such a bounty for so long. When you skip a meal, people are like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe they're doing that. Look, f- fasting has been around for a long time. Uh, you know it from the Bible. Uh, you may be familiar with it. Intermittent fasting is kind of like the new modern spin on it. And it's a great way of doing it because you can take weight off fast. Uh, it's easy to do with Fast Blast because they can work you through the with these smoothies that they have. They can fill you up. They're uniquely formulated for intermittent fasting. You can still have great energy. You're not going to get. You don't have to worry about the stuff that you're worried about. Fewer cravings. The best part of this um, is very simple, and it tastes great with the smoothies because there's not like that weird chemical aftertaste. They're good. On my fasting days, I'll have one smoothie every couple of hours. Lots of liquids, and it helps keep me satisfied. The smoothies come in convenient and easy to use, squeezable pouches. No blender. No scales. I'm way too lazy for all that crap. Uh, Fast Blast just pulls it off. They make it easy. Uh, check out Fast Blast. Fast Blast is uh, really a great way of doing this. Uh, do your own homework, though. Make sure it's right for you. Fastblast.com blaze. Be sure to use the slash blaze part of the address at the end because that's how they know you like this stupid show. Get started today with Fast Blast for a healthier and smaller you. It's Fastblast.com blaze. I had to guess Halloween 2020 will probably be the most terrifying Halloween yet. And that's not just because there's been over 2000 Halloween sequels. I'm talking about the year, a highly contagious and deadly respiratory plagues going on, riots, economic upheaval, quarantines, autonomous zones. <sighs> wow. But we're forgetting the most terrifying detail of all the component that will make Halloween 2020 the truly most nightmarish Halloween of all time. Cultural appropriation. If you thought looting and murder was scary, oh, my gosh, brace yourself for a drunk white chick in a Sacagawea costume. Unimaginable. I know it's around the corner. It's in your future. Prepare for it. Here to talk about uh, the insanity that's going on in our world is friend of the program, Robbie Suave, senior editor at Reason.com. Robbie, you make a heck of a claim here in your latest piece, a new low for cancel culture. I didn't think that was possible until I read your piece. This is an utterly amazing story.
1: Yeah, it's uh, amazing doesn't even begin to describe it. Uh, So this was a a piece that ran in the Washington Post uh, that is itself about a party hosted by people who work for the Washington Post. So already we're, we're on some pretty, <laughs> some pretty uh, contestable footing because probably uh, news organizations shouldn't be writing about uh, matters that so kind of importantly involve their own staff. And in fact, there was nothing newsworthy about this event. This was a Halloween party hosted by one of their cartoonists several years ago, attended by a number of people. Uh, including a, a woman uh, in her 50s who was a friend of the cartoonist and wore an offensive costume. Uh, she was actually intending to mock Megyn Kelly, uh, the former television uh, uh, host uh, who had made controversial remarks at the time about, uh, about blackface or had said, I, I think she kind of got a raw deal about it. She had said that is it different to portray a specific person rather than mock all black people, uh, by, by darkening your face for a costume. So that was what she was going for. Mm-hmm. This woman is making fun of Megyn Kelly. She puts Megyn Kelly's sort of name tag on her, on her, uh, on her dress. And she's in blackface, which is offensive. And some people who were at the party took offense and they told her that, and that kind of should have been the whole, <laughs> that could have been the whole thing <laughs> right there. This happened yeah. years ago. Mm-hmm. No reason any of us need to learn about it. No, but uh, but the Washington Post decided to revisit the matter years later.
0: And this is an important point, I think, to start this off, because it gets more and more crazy from here. But the the person who's at the party is making a woke point about Megyn Kelly. And this is the lesson that no one ever seems to want to learn. You will never be woke enough. There's never an end to this game. And this woman who I again, I want to feel bad for her. Um, because she's being, I think, victimized in public for no reason. This was not a public event. No one was talking about this. The Washington Post didn't cover it when it happened, uh, even though it was at their party. And yet here she is being dragged through the mud. And part of me really wants to be to stand up and say, this is uh, this is incredible. The other part is, you know, she is someone who is doing was trying to do the same thing to Megyn Kelly. Um, And, you know, I, I don't. it it feels revengey to say that, but it feels, uh, I know it's my worst instinct to go down that road, but it feels like almost like justice in some weird, totally wrong way. Am I reading that right?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think it would be, maybe it would be justice for her to be called out for having done, which is indeed what happened at the party. You know, people didn't like that she had done this. I think she kind of Yeah, this was this was a misfire. This was a (laughs) misexecuted mocking costume. I think it was kind of mean spirited anyway, like you said. And the next day she apologized. You know, she sent a a, a apology message to the host and said, you know, this I'm really sorry I ruined your party. Um, This was a huge mistake. Of course, the underlying point being what you were alluding to is that you can never be woke enough there's no there's no guarantee that the that the mob won't come for you. I mean, the French Revolution leaders all get guillotined eventually, right? <laughs> that's that's how these things always work. Um, she probably didn't expect this form of justice, where years later, these these two um, young women who were at the party, who were offended and are kind of progressive woke people, um, they decide to revisit the issue by messaging the party host. And demanding that he give up the name of this woman because she's not a public person, they don't know who she is. So just recently, they did this. They're like, "You have to tell us who this was." And he was kind of like, "No." And <laughs> then they said, "Well, then you're complicit in her systemic racism if you don't if you don't denounce this friend of yours." And they also told the Washington Post they wanted they you know they wanted they wanted it covered. And I, what I'm gathering is they kind of said, "Well, you know, if you're not going to give into our demands here, well then you're complicit in the problem." So, so how does the Washington post avoid becoming the villain of this story? Well, it's to tell it and they throw this woman under the bus to a to a degree that is that is truly unfathomable. They name her, they shame her in a 3000 word piece that gets her immediately fired. Um, again, this is not being a public, she's not running for office, she's not anyone you would ever heard of. She's, she's just a person. Uh, now being wh- whose life is now being destroyed for a for a kind of trivial mistake she made years ago at a Washington Post party that's now being told to you by the Washington
0: Post. <laughs> it is incredible. You know, I, f- I feel like several years ago I sat back and I remember we were talking to John Ronson on the air who wrote uh, the book So You've Been Publicly Shamed. And I remember thinking, like, this is the turning point here, like this book is so correctly dissects the insanity of this moment where these people who are making jokes that are just misinterpreted uh, jokes that weren't even racist, but are misinterpreted by others. They're losing their jobs. They're losing their livelihood. We're going to come around to a sensible moment. That moment not only didn't come, but we went sprinting in the opposite direction to the point of where we're canceling, you know, uh, you know, TV shows that are unrelated to other incidents across the country. Food products are being pulled off the market. Uh, This is just like our pastime now. And it seems to be the side of the argument that has the righteous power behind it. I just don't understand it. We've all made mistakes and it doesn't seem like our society is developing in a way that's going to allow any more of them.
1: I mean, unfortunately, it seems like it's getting worse. Uh, you know, it's funny you mentioned the So You've Been Publicly Shamed book. You know, from there to then, it's gotten worse. Mm-hmm. I mean, because that, the the shaming of Justine Sacco, the woman who made the joke, and then she got on the a bad joke about Africa, and then she got on the airplane, and then it was like she's being canceled on social media yeah. while she's unaware, while she's on this flight. There, So there was some... You know, shaming of her being done by, I think, like Gawker, like those kinds of media people who are always about shame. But this one is being done by the Washington Post, which is one of the kind of two most supposedly prestigious journalism um, institutions there are. These are the institutions that, that are supposed to be immune to this kinds of absolute nonsense. And not only were they not immune, they were essentially sort of threatened by two woke young people into doing this and and they they caved and i can't believe that there was no editor internally who was like should we really be writing about our own party in this way like it's it, like it's unethical on just that consideration and that didn't occur to them it was so important for them to do this so that they didn't get you know targeted as oh well they were holding an insensitive party or something like that i mean that shows you how much more power the kind of punishing cancel activists, whatever you want to call them, we don't we had to, we don't have the best term yet for mm-hmm. how you what what we should call them, but these people seem to have gained power um, uh, and are gaining it still in the years since that kind of that moment, which seemed like the the you know the apex of cancel culture. It's gotten so much worse.
0: Yeah, it's, it's interesting. You're, you're leading me down a road, and I've been I've been sort of tossing around a theory. Let me run it by you here because it's not fully baked yet. I admit this in advance, Robbie. Um, But there's something interesting going on with the media in that we went through a period where there was all these huge newsrooms and they paid all this money to all these veteran journalists. And it was a it was the way the media was constructed for a long time. Social media comes around. The Internet comes around. It breaks up that monopoly, brings a lot of really good things to the table in that process. But part of that, I think, is that these these um, these cornerstone media organizations wind up shedding a lot of their older, experienced journalists that, while a lot of times I didn't like their leaning and, and some of their bias, were at least attempting to do journalism, even though I don't, I didn't always like the way they did it. Instead, they get replaced with younger people who are, are willing to take smaller salaries to go into these businesses because they want to change the world. They're activists. They're not journalists. And that is what seems to be happening here. Where these organizations, I mean, this is not a, this, the Washington Post shouldn't be making decisions like this. And I, you don't need to be some expert in, in journalism to understand that writing a 3,000-word piece where you shame a non-public figure uh, uh, in the Washington Post is an insane idea. And it's it's possibly, I mean, I don't know, when it comes to public figure, uh, you know, libel laws and all that stuff, not that I'm a fan of those rules. I mean, they're, they're certainly bumping up against the lines there. This is not a it's not a good decision. And I wonder if if the, the thinning out of that old guard is actually making a big difference to these older institutions.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and it used to be the case you wouldn't even. So the libel consideration wouldn't really enter in because. No, no respectable journalistic outlet was going to do something like this, like, you know, the National Enquirer would or Mm -hmm. something, you know, the the kinds of publication you find on the stand in the supermarket aisle would, but not The New York Times and The Washington Post. Now they're making decisions at the behest of young staffers who increasingly take this view that journalism should be more deliberately activist, uh, sympathetic to activist tactics, and that this means doing this, you know, the sort of thing they're doing now or, or, or choosing stories that I think humor a certain kind of woke on issues of race and gender, et cetera, kind of agenda. And and they're also very resistant to pushback from their own bosses and editors because they'll say, well, you can't, you know, you're making it unsafe for me if you're telling me my position is invalid. So I think a lot of of the kind of smoothing out of the edges or the learning that the younger staffers should be uh, would ideally be practicing or engaged in um, is is not to some degree taking place because no one is no one is telling them no. They're kind of taking over these places. That's what we're seeing at the New York Times with the whole Tom Cotton op-ed. Mm-hmm. Um, we're seeing it, you know, internally at in a lot of newsrooms. And again, it's not all new reporters. It's not all young people who are like this. Um, it's just a handful that kind of have an agenda and are really getting away with it, despite being in the extreme minority. Certainly, extreme minority of like all people in America, right? <laughs> Everyone thinks this is, that kind of thing is ridiculous, except a small number of people who increasingly command the entire conversation.
0: All right. There's so much more to go on this, but Robbie Suave, we're out of time. I appreciate you coming on. Robbie Suave Suave is a senior editor at Reason.com. Thanks so much for coming on the program. We're back in a second. You got to have a VPN. I mean, it's 2020. What are you doing? ExpressVPN is the software that I and thousands of my uh, friends, my listeners, my viewers, I use every day to protect their data online. It's uh, in the time since I started using ExpressVPN, the whole world has changed, first of all. Hacking methods have grown even more sophisticated I'm sure many of you are working from home. Uh, that's a big situation. Everyone's online. Well, without your IT department to protect you from these online threats, it's important that you take action on your own to secure your devices and uh, make sure the, the devices that you use for work are protected. That's why I recommend using ExpressVPN for the best online protection available. I've been talking about it for a while on my show. Um, why? Well, it's the easiest one. It's the best one. Um, It's it's one of those things where if you don't think security threats uh, are are affecting you personally, uh, you you gotta you gotta wake up to this stuff because ExpressVPN can make sure that people aren't getting at your data. You can make sure that uh, it's it's not like leaving your door unlocked every time you go out. Um, You gotta make sure you protect yourself. One of the easiest ways to do that, ExpressVPN. You click one button on your computer or your smartphone, you're protected. Uh, my only question is, why haven't you jo- joined yet? Why haven't you tried it? Uh, I have. Uh, everybody around here is using ExpressVPN. Uh, visit my special link right now, expressvpn.com slash stew. Get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. Protect your internet uh, today with a VPN that I trust to make sure that my data is safe. Expressvpn.com slash stew. Make sure to use the slash stew part of the address because that's how they know you like this stupid show. Expressvpn.com slash stew. Stew. Sometimes people tweet things that are trying to make one point and you see them the totally opposite way. Uh, there's a tweet that came out from someone who was criticizing Donald Trump for the wall he was building. And I've been as big a critic of Donald Trump on the wall as anybody. I just, you know, I never thought he was going to build the whole thing and he's not going to be able to do the whole thing. But some of the talk about replacing sections of the wall, uh, I haven't really taken all that seriously Look at this, though. This is a picture of what the vehicle barrier was before uh, the replacement of the wall, the maintenance project that Donald Trump did. Here's the after. I mean, there's a significant difference there. Uh, You're not getting over that thing as easily as the other one. Do we have a side by side here? Uh, now, this was criti- tweeted as a criticism, like Donald Trump is doing bad things on the border. I would argue that you got to give him some credit here. Uh, that's him doing good things on the border, and uh, he deserves some credit there. Uh, so when we see uh, stuff we need to give him credit for, we do, uh, because that's what, that's what we do here. This is why you come, hopefully. Back in a second. Trying to sell your home is challenging. Uh, That's why I need a real estate agent who's going to come in and take charge of the situation. Realestateagentsitrust.com. You've heard us talking about it before. It's Glenn's company. He started it several years ago. And he started it with the idea of, hey, uh, I'm having disastrous results with my real estate agents. I need to figure out a system. Uh, to sort through these guys and and find the best ones. Well, we've done that. Uh, They've done the work a long time ago on that. And when you have the kind of agents who work with realestateagentsitrust.com and instead they're working for you, you can rest assured that you're going to be in the hands of a capable team of people who will see you're selling process through from day one they know the paperwork they know how to do all this stuff but more importantly they understand you they understand the things that you want until the moment you sign on the dotted line realestateagentsitrust.com the name kind of says it all realestateagentsitrust.com if you want to sell your house uh, fast and for the most money realestateagentsitrust.com check it out now this may be the worst era ever to make a living off of political comedy uh, which, if you know anything about the comedians, uh, turns out to make the jokes even more enjoyable and painful. Few people understand this cycle of pain and comedy better than Bridget Phetasy. She's the host of Walkins ins Welcome uh, and uh, the Weekly Dumpster <laughs> Fire on YouTube as well. Bridget, thanks so much for coming on the program. I appreciate it.
2: Thank you. Good to see you again.
0: Good to see you. Um, I want to start with the cancel culture story of the day because there's always a cancel culture story of the day. This one is Jimmy Kimmel. Uh, He has apologized now for a uh, bit that he did a while ago on with Carl Malone. Let me give you a quick uh, clip of what he said. He said, I have long been reluctant to address this, as I knew doing so would be celebrated as a victory by those who equate apologies with weakness and cheer for leaders who use prejudice to divide us. That delay was a mistake. There is nothing more important to me than your respect. And I apologize to those who were genuinely hurt or offended by the makeup I wore or the words I spoke. Uh, first of all, should Jimmy Kimmel, Kimmel be apologizing for the bit he did back in the day? And how do you as a comedian deal with trying to be funny when, you know, at any point things could change and you have to apologize for whatever you've just done?
2: Comedy is dead. <laughs> <laughs> I'm worried that it's just dead.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's that's like the economy I of words there.
2: You've actually nailed the up. entire the interview. Is all go home. No more. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> We're done.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, Jimmy's interesting because he, he's so far on one side and that I hadn't read that statement yet, but it sounds more like a a bit of an unpology. Mm-hmm. Um Like I, like I did, if I understand it correctly, I didn't address this because the, then the racist people will celebrate or something (laughs) or like the other side, those racists will be excited. Um, Which doesn't seem like much of an apology. And I'm not sure. How long ago was the bit? 20 years?
0: Yeah, it's been a very long time. It was back. I mean, you know, he did these bits. He was very... I mean, he started out... People forget the man show with Adam Carolla. It was a very offensive thing. I mean... Uh, the Me Too violations on that show. I mean, I can't even I can't even go through all of them. Uh, that would be oh, the, God. I mean, it was it was, you know, they went really far and, you know, it was understood in the context of what it was. Like, they weren't trying to do anything different. And it was something in that time that that seemed to work for them. Um, I get worried about how we look back at these things and we we use the two decades later sensibilities on these old situations. It's not productive and it just it's just going to make a for a very boring world if we continue to to implement those sorts of restrictions.
2: Not only is it boring, it's it it doesn't allow for progress in a very strange way because we've made progress. Things that were funny 20 years ago are things that we would look at and say, oh, maybe that was more insensitive than we might have realized back then. Things that were funny 40 years ago. Um, I also I think that uh, as a comedian, you know, I will defend my right to be hyperbolic. So I think what's happened is that we've lost the ability. You die on the hill of being allowed to be hyperbolic. You don't need to defend all of the things that you're necessarily being hyperbolic about, because that's where you start to lose ground, you as a comedian, you should be able to make jokes and about anything and everything. And those things that are funny are often the things that are taboo and that we can't joke about. And so when you start censoring that stuff or going back and canceling people for jokes, they made that are 20 years old. I mean, any comedian knows that when you start doing comedy, you're embarrassed by your bits two years <laughs> later. You, you, it's like I'm embarrassed by things that I started out joking about. And I'm sure there are comedians who are professional comedians now who, you know, did horrible jokes. That's how you get better. I think it was Chris Rock who said comedy is the only art where you have to fail publicly in order to get better. Mm. You can't sit in your room and learn a song privately. There's no way around it. You have to publicly humiliate yourself. And when you're a comedian, you know, we're holding these basically clowns to these standards that are <laughs> ridiculous. We're all mentally ill. <laughs> Why are you holding me to the same standard as a doctor or a lawyer? <laughs> yeah,
0: it's true. I, I kind of had the same sort of uh, observation when it comes to people and you know, I, I came up in radio um, and as everyone in radio will tell you, Everyone in radio is insane. Like we're just all, you know, like you get into this industry for a reason. You're <laughs> nuts. <laughs> okay. And it's funny because you go through life uh, as a comedian or as a radio host and you're trying to express yourself in the most, you know, the way that's going to be explosive. It's going to make people feel something right. That's your desire. Um, and that worked, I think, for a good part of American history. We're now at a point, though, with everyone on social media where everyone essentially is a host. Everyone is trying to elicit reaction from everyone else. Right. And I could tell you from being in this industry, it is not a healthy way to go through life, is it? No, and
2: and now we're seeing everyone trying to be hyperbolic so that it, mm. uh, on the one hand I would defend that ability and on the other you see everybody that's the way to get attention and people have realized and I said this kind of years ago when attention is commodified and it doesn't matter what you're getting attention for mm. it's whether you're a car when somebody like the Kardashians has billions of dollars now because they have billions of eyes on them it it's creating a precedent where it's really just getting exposure now in that climate you have people who are pushing the edge i would say milo is a great example of this mm. and went so far that he's been essentially kind of unpersoned so i guess where is the line in a world where everyone's trying to be the most extreme version of themselves online we aren't we aren't the people You know, we all become these abstractions online, but we aren't those people in real life. Most of the time, Mm -hmm. you're not sitting at at the dinner table like you're sitting right now and interviewing. And I'm I'm I mean, I'm pretty much the same person, (laughs) I think, in both places. But but no one told me I could do comedy (laughs) when I was young. I was always saying extreme things. at at Christmas dinner, just to get a laugh or a reaction. And I now have an outlet for that. That's more healthy. But yeah, I'm not sure. I think that because everybody's trying to do this now, they're trying to put guardrails around it. But then now you're you're now. Who gets to decide where the guardrails are becomes a big problem.
0: Yeah, I'm curious as just if, if just taking it just to comedy for a second here. I feel like it is the the area I would defend the most more than political speech in a lot of ways. comedy mm-hmm. needs to be and to have those those super loose lines. You should be able to go Basically anywhere for any reason um, you brought up, you know, Jimmy Kimmel 20 years ago. Uh, we, we talked about a story earlier this week where Bob Odenkirk and David Cross, who are brilliant comedians, uh, did a show called Mr. Show, of course, and they did a show uh, mm-hmm. on Netflix as well mm-hmm. as they kind of rebooted it. It was in 2015. They had one of their sketches pulled because David Cross wears blackface in the sketch and the, the sketch was basically to say almost the same point as Black Lives Matter, that white police were ha- were handling black people worse than they were white people. It was part of the point of the sketch. My, my point there is that that's only a few years ago. Right. That's right. not 20 years ago. Is that an OK line? If your motivation is right, where how do you figure out who gets canceled and who gets respect for pushing the, the envelope?
2: Well, and that's the the thing is I don't want to figure that out. I, I don't want, I don't, I certainly don't want humorless people to be figuring out what's funny. <laughs> and I certainly want to allow for the exploration of comedy. You have to, you're, there's no area for mistake. And in that instance that you're talking about, I think context matters. So if you pick something completely out of context, anything is problematic, Mm -hmm. almost anything is problematic. You could cut and paste a million things that I've said and they would be horrific and problematic. Mm -hmm. But if you put that, and we see this all the time online with clips. Um, you know, this is why even sharing clips online, like, okay, what's the context before I share that? Because oftentimes you'll find it's not what you thought it was. So if you're using that point, if you're using it to make a point, it's another good example is, um, Tropic Thunder, you know, he was making fun of if they were making a point and using it to make fun of the whole situation. And now I think that. If you take that out of context and, ju- context and just look at the thing itself, well, yeah, that's not funny. Yeah, but if it, yeah, <laughs> like, it's true. a lot of things aren't funny if you take them out of context.
0: Yeah, we, we did something on earlier this week about, or last week I think it was, it's it's not the act. It's the motivation behind the act that's really important. Um, you know, we can all talk about where those lines are, but that's a really crucial thing to understand. Let me get one more here, though, before um, before you have to go. Uh, I this is one of those things that conservatives complain about a lot, which is cancel culture, though, you know, they engage in it a lot (laughs) as well. Um, And I think that's that's a problem. Uh, And it it leads me down a road constantly where there is this divide, I think, in in conservative uh, media in particular where. We look at something like cancel culture and we have this decision to make whether we push back and say this standard that we're complaining about, about the cancel culture in the first place is uh, is not acceptable. And we're going to push back against it. Or um, we've been presented this double standard, which is essentially a fork in the road. And what we're going to do is codify that standard by adopting it and utilizing it against the other side because they deserve it. They brought that in first. And I I like to say, I want to keep my principles. You had a great uh, tweet. I wrote it down here. Um, uh, If you can't apply your principles to people you don't agree with, your principles are garbage. Like that's I complete that is I completely agree with that. The other side, though, brings up to me all the time. Yeah, that's great. But you know what? It doesn't work. These things just keep happening and it's not effective. How do you answer something like that?
2: Well, What I find with just kind of being lost in the space in the wasteland of the middle is and observing Mm -hmm. it all is that the conservative media seems to be very reactive there because they don't necessarily have the dominant culture um, on their side Mm -hmm. and they don't have the media and they don't have, you know, you have conservative media. So in general. If you're trying to apply rules that you're the other side of the team made up and doesn't the other team made up and doesn't apply to themselves, you are already losing because you're basically reacting to somebody who's not gonna even care if you play by those rules because they don't play by those rules themselves. In fact, they made up the rules when it comes to this kind of thing. So as unfair as that is, I would say that really all you have left is your principles. And instead of trying to react and say, and uh, race to the bottom or engage and codify that kind of behavior, you try and present something better, show a better way, let comedians Mm -hmm. say what they want to say on conservative media and attract people to your your side instead of engaging in the behavior that I think everyone finds repellent.
0: Well, I think that's the right way to go. Uh, Bridget, we're running out of time here, and I do appreciate you coming on and taking the time. You brought up earlier people taking clips out of context, and uh, that's actually, we're going to have a whole segment of taking your clips out of context coming up later on the program. You're going to love it. Uh, Bridget Phetasy, uh, host of Walk-Ins Welcome, (laughs) as well as the Weekly Dumpster Fire on YouTube. Thanks very much for coming on the show. We're back in a second. If you're on iTunes, please review the show with five stars. It really helps us out. This one says, stupid show, this love, I, whatever great it's from Jim Dyslexic, which is, is hateful. It's hateful. It's also five stars, though, so I love it. And uh, each show is about a specific topic or something. It's great. Whatever. Glad I got to meet Stu on a flight from Dallas to St. Louis this year. All great things happen on flights to St. Louis. Five freaking stars. We'll see you tomorrow.